So what is the purpose of this letter? At this time, there were three main groups of people within the Christian church. The, the Christian church, as it was growing, now, we're no longer in the early, early days, where the early days compared to us today. Um, but at this point, the apostles are all pretty much dead except for John. Therefore, the church has moved to a new form of leadership, elders and that kind of stuff, but no longer the apostles who knew and walked with Jesus. Even the people who were not apostles who knew and walked with Jesus are mostly dead now. And so we're moving into what's called second-generation Christianity, where only a few from the first generation are left, like John. And, and they're now beginning to establish what does it mean for us to be Christians in churches now without those people who actually knew and walked with Christ. This new group, uh, this Christianity, is emerged as three kinds of groups of people. At this time, the, the only people that are making up the church are people who are coming from Judaism and people who are coming from the Greek world. Those are the only people flooding in because the Greek world is everything at this time period. And Judaism is really the only culture that kind of maintained their distinctness despite the overwhelming power of the Greek and Roman cultures. The first group of Christians are Jewish Christians. These are people who grew up in Judaism, the law, and, and, and the, the, the Pharisees turned into a works-oriented religion, the, the holding to the Torah and the law and the, 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 the Mosaic law and that kind of stuff. And, and they have realized that Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the one that they're looking forward to. And they came to it. But they have had it pounded into their head for generation after generation after generation, both by the Bible and their doctrinal traditions from the Pharisees, that God is not a human. And now they've come to Christianity. They've embraced Jesus Christ for John, when he uses the phrase Jesus Christ, Jesus is the human, right? He didn't take the name Jesus until his incarnation. Before that, he was a second member of the Trinity. Probably had a name, but it's never been revealed to us in the Bible other than Yahweh. But Yahweh is the Trinity. Jesus is him as a human. But Christ is him as a God because the word Christ means anointed one, which comes from the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word, comes from the Hebrew word, Meshach, which means anointed one. And, um, and so he is the anointed one, the king, that will be empowered by God himself to speak on God's behalf and to implement God's will on earth. Like Moses. Moses was almost godlike. Even God in Exodus said, I will make you like a god to Pharaoh. He had an absolute authority. He saw God face to face. He spoke God's words. He did what God, even God said, I have never spoken to anybody like I have Moses. The Messiah was supposed to be like that because Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, one like me will come and he, he will be the Messiah that will redeem you. He doesn't use the word Messiah, but that's the idea. And so for John, Christ is God, and Jesus is human. So when John uses the word Jesus Christ, he means the man-God. I say God-man, he's saying man-God. For John, the Jews have embraced this Messiah, but, as they're but at the same time, it has been beaten and rooted into their thinking that God is not a man. And as they're living in the church and starting to go learn things, you know that newness of coming to Christ, but then reality starts crashing back in again? They're beginning to say, oh my goodness, my family is hating me right now. 
My family is saying I'm, a, I'm this horrible, crazy person who bought in this stupid thing. I, I'm, I'm going against everything that is Judaism. I'm going against everything that is Yahweh. And in, in, in the same time, you're telling me as the apostles that this is Yahweh's plan, that this is Yahweh's son, that he is the redemption of humanity, that this is what Judaism was supposed to become. But, but you're new and you're few, and my family has long traditions. And, and we what, have Corinthians and maybe Mark or a few things, other things at this time. But there's 39 books in the First Testament. And they're struggling with, rightfully so, rightfully so, they're struggling with this idea that yes, yes, this all makes sense to me and this is why I want to be a part of it. But the power of family is powerful. And tradition is powerful. Especially if your family is constantly coming at you and beating you down with your, this is not Jewish. This is not, this is a violation of the law. This is a violation of the First Testament. You claim that you're following the Messiah that is the fruit of the First Testament. This is not it. And that's a hard thing to, to resist. And so they're struggling. And they're, they're denying the Godhood. They're denying the, the humanity. Sorry. They're, they're denying the Godhood. I said that wrong earlier. They're denying the Godhood of, of Jesus. They can't, they know Jesus is a human. He walked in their country. He lived among them. They, they saw his teachings, but they cannot embrace the fact that he is God. Because for them, Messiah was an Israelite who was going to come and lead them. And so they are having a hard time accepting the Godhood of Jesus. Because man is not God and God is not man. And for them, they can embrace his humanity because they saw him. They heard him. The news went through Israel and the Pharisees. But they cannot embrace his Godhood. And they're struggling with that. The second group are the Greeks that came into the world, the Christianity. And the Greeks, for them, the body is not a valuable thing. Christianity and Judaism is the only thing that values the human body. Only those two religions have a resurrection. No other religion believes in resurrection. No other religion values the body. No religion believes that the body will come back. They're Greeks. And for them, the body is not a valuable thing. The body is not something that you want to maintain and care about. Um, the, the body is what you feed to keep yourself alive until the day that you don't need it again. And, and for them, knowledge is everything. For them, it's the spiritual realm. And for them, gods are gods. And they're numerous. And they're plentiful. For Jesus to be a god, no big deal. This is a god. Perseus became a god. Hercules was half god, half human, right? They don't have a problem with that kind of stuff. And resurrection is just ridiculous. Even Paul bucked up against this in Acts, where you go to the Greeks and you start talking about Jesus, and they're like, oh, they're fascinated by this. But the minute he started talking about resurrection, they're like, what? That's dumb. Why, why would anybody want to be resurrected? Okay, that's a stumbling block, an obstacle. Paul says this, that Christ being God is a stumbling block to the Jews, but Christ being human was a futile. Resurrection was futile to the Greeks. They're having a hard time. They're attracted to it. They embraced it. They came into it. But their family's telling them, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. Resurrection. Why would you want resurrection? The body is useless. The body is frail and fragile. Get rid of it. Right? Even today we're saying that. 
Why, why would you care about the value of body? Let's spend billions and billions of dollars learning how to clone people so we can transfer your consciousness from one body to the next. Let's build AI robots so we can transfer your consciousness from robot to robot to robot because we can build something bigger and better than the human body. We can improve on it. The billion dollar man, right? The bionic man, we can build him better and stronger, right? We, we, can, we can do something better because the body's frail. Why would you care about the body? Leave the body, go into a robot. And then you can repair it and fix it and keep going from one thing to the next thing. This is what our government is obsessed with. And that's what they, how they're thinking. Why would you want that? And so these Greeks are now being pressured by their family. I, they, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God, man, but they got a very valid points. The third group are the Christians who have embraced Jesus, the God, man, fully. Some of them are Greeks who have become Christians. Some of them are Jews who have become Christians. But they are completely sold out now. They don't care what their family thinks on that level. They don't, they're not distracted anymore. They're not, they, are, they have lived it, they have breathed it, they have experienced it, they are devoted, they are committed. And all three of these people are living in the same building. Worshiping together, teaching together, studying the word together, and there's lots of division in the church. And John is first and foremost writing to the believers who have embraced it fully. And these false teachers are taking advantage of these divisions. These false teachers are coming in, at least with the Greeks, and they're sticking a crowbar in the cracks, and they're just prying and prying and prying with their false teachings. And so John, the primary purpose of John writing these letters is to assure the believers that they do have the truth of who Yahweh is and that they can be sure of their salvation. There is a very small group of Christians who are standing in the middle of two opposing theological views that are coming into the church. The Judaizers and the false teachers of the Greek world. And John is writing to assure them, you are saved. Be confident in the truth that you've embraced and be confident that that is fellowship with God and salvation. As first and primary purpose in this weird world of all these philosophies and all these ideologies, when everybody's telling you're an idiot for being a Christian and it's futile, John is writing and saying, you have salvation. It is not through works. It is not through secret knowledge. It is through the truth of who Christ is as the Son of God who is the revelation of Yahweh, who was sent to die on the cross for your sins. And you can be assured of your salvation as you struggle with all these things that are happening. That's his first and primary purpose for writing this letter. This can be seen in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. At the very end of the letter, he writes, I have written these things to you. This is why I'm writing to you. Who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing to you who've embraced Jesus, the Son of God, so you may know you have eternal life. John is writing to believers to assure them that they do have eternal life, which is neither secretive nor earned. Earned brings no assurance. Secrets bring no assurance. Faith in a God-man who did it all for you, that brings assurance. And that's John's focus in these letters. 
For John, there are two basic components to assurance. Two basic opponents, components, both of which are emphasized repeatedly throughout the epistle. So this isn't like where John says first and then second in his letter. These are two components that he repeats over and over and over again. First is obedience to Yahweh, which means believing in Jesus Christ as the God-man and showing love to fellowship to believers. For John, the first component of salvation is obedience. And obedience is the result of believing the truth about Jesus, having him living in you, and love coming out. Because, right, what is the Mosaic, the Mosaic law? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love him with all of your heart, life, and everything. And the second one is like it and equal to it, Jesus says. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. So for John, true assurance comes from the fact that you obey the truth of who Jesus is, and therefore love flows out of you, because you're obedient to the commands of God. And we're going to unpack this later, but John will never argue that you must do this perfectly to be assured. But John will argue that you shall want to do this and you should see fruit and evidence and over time it should become greater and more prominent in your life. That's the message that God has always painted throughout the Bible. This goes back to, for John, truth and love is his way of saying walking with God. Enoch walked with God and he was translated and was no more. Job walked with God and God found favor with him. Abraham walked with God and God declared him righteous right? Well, what does walking with God mean? None of us can step completely in sync with God all the time because that would make us sinless. And nobody is without sin because the Bible makes it very clear for all of us sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But the Bible also tells you that the true mark of a believer is perseverance and obedience. So you're like, well, wait a minute, these two contradict each other, right? But walk with God throughout the Bible means this. Walking with God means that you pursue obedience, walking in the way that God does, but when you don't, you repent quickly. This is what it means to be blameless. You repent quickly. Because even repentance is obedience. Now, I'm not saying that you should sin so you can obey and repent. But repentance is obedience. Right? Because an unrepentant person, that's not truth and that's not love. For the Bible, you pursue obedience. Right? I'll give you an example. Every time somebody runs for president, What's the first thing the media does? Yeah, rips apart. Tries to find all the skeletons in their past, right? They used to do drugs. They smoked it, but they didn't inhale. They had an affair with somebody, right? They embezzled something. Their kids are alcoholic and been in and out with it, right? They always go and find skeletons in the closet. And no matter how many times this happens, on both sides of the political spectrum, every time they discover something about their hero candidate, the American culture is like, oh, what? Not my candidate. They're not blameless. Because they covered it up. And they hid it. But blameless means this. You're running and whatever, and the media digs up an affair that you had or a drug addiction you had. And they start blasting all over the radios. And everybody that's closest to that person says, yeah, we already knew that. They confessed that a long time ago. And they have entered into this rehab program. They have done this thing. They have all these people surrounding them. They have put these boundaries to protect them and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and everybody knows about it. 
No, the whole entire world didn't know about because it wasn't a sin in front of the entire world. And I believe very strongly the more public your sin, the more public you have to confess. Like if you just sin before a few people, that's the only people you need to confess and deal with. But if you're a president of the United States and you sin before the entire nation, then you should publicly confess in front of the entire nation. Or a pastor or a student in a classroom or a teacher or whatever. They confess it. And everybody knows about it. And it loses all of its power. Yeah, the whole world didn't know about it, but there was enough people who knew about it, and they can point to this and that and that and that and that and that and everything that you've done to repent and protect yourself. That's blameless. And it means that the more you do this, then you'll go longer without sinning the next time. You'll repent more quickly next time than you did last time. Remember, sanctification is not how quickly you can defeat sin and overcome it. Sanctification is, did I sin a little bit less in this area this year than I did last year? Did I repent more quickly this time than I did last time? Did I mean that repentance more authentically this time than the last time? Did I repair relationships more deeply and more sacrificially this time than last time? And if you can say that over time, that's sanctification. And that's walking with God. And that's what John means by the true believer will obey. Not perfectly. But they will go. Every year will be better. Every year will be better. That's all God can hope from a broken, fallen, selfish people is that we will just become better over time as we embrace truth and love. And so that's the first component of salvation, assurance. Second, Yahweh has given his Holy Spirit to the believers who testifies to them that they belong to the Father. Now, the second component is the Holy Spirit testifies you to you that you are saved. This is what I tell my students a lot of times. They'll come to me and like, I, I just don't know if I'm saved. I'm really struggling with this sin in my life right now, or I, 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 I still haven't become perfect, and my parents are still upset with me on this thing or whatever, and I, I still can't get it. And I said, does that really bother you? And they're like, yeah. Does it haunt you? Yeah. Are you worried about what will happen to you if you're really not saved? Yeah. Are you worried about where you are with God and your salvation if you're not really saved? And I said, yeah. And I said, welcome to the Holy Spirit testifying to your salvation. Because a non-believer who doesn't care about God doesn't care if they're not with God. Right? If I can't stand you and I don't believe in you and I don't want to be around you, am I worried when I'm not with you? Does it bother me that I'm not with you? Does it bother me that you don't like me? Does it bother me that I'm not in a loving relationship with you where you're pleased and I'm pleased? The only time that ever bothers us is when we care. And we're connected to people. I don't, it doesn't bother me if there's somebody in like Africa who doesn't love me. I don't know them. I don't have a relationship with them. But I am bothered with my spouse. I'm bothered with my kids. I'm bothered with my family. Because I desire that. And, and, and so what John's saying is the Holy Spirit testifies this. When the Holy Spirit convicts you and that bothers you and you want to make good on it, do you do it perfectly all the time? No but it still bothers you. It matters to you. Do you want, do you, do you perfectly do your devotions and pray all the time? No, but you want to, and it bothers you when you don't. For John, that's the second component of assurance. Because people who do not want to know God and do not want to embrace the truth of God and do not want to be with God are not bothered if they're not known by God and connected to God. Now, granted, the more deeply you feel that, the more the assurance is there. 
And so for John, this is the components. John is emphasizing this obedience because of the false teachers that come into the community, teaching false doctrine. For them, they are living lives that are not glorifying God, and, there's, and morality is not important to them. And so they become opponents to Jesus. The secondary purpose of John, the Johannine letters, is to refute the teachings of the false teachers. John stresses that there are certain non-negotiables, certain basic doctrinal beliefs that you must believe in in order to be truth, in truth, to be in the truth. I like to teach this. I don't have time to go into this, but um, this could be a whole other lesson itself. I like the view. I think that the core of what true, what you must believe in as a Christian to be saved is very few. The fewer blocks you have, the fewer points you have, the m- Christianity is inclusive and exclusive. It's, it's inclusive that you have to believe certain things. It just can't be like, well, what's true for you is true for you, and true for me is true for me. And we all have different paths going up the mountain to God. And as long as we're a good intention and we're pursuing God, we'll all be saved. Christianity is like, no, 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 no. This is, inclu- this, this is sorry, exclusive. This is exclusive. You must believe certain things. And if you don't, there is no other path to God on the mountain. But it's also inclusive that the gospel message is very simple and very basic on one level that even little children can embrace it. Even children can be saved. But yet at the same time, it's so complex that you can spend your entire lifetime exploring it, learning and understanding it. In this sense, what we must absolutely believe in in order to be saved are very few pillars. And I like to see it as a Jenga tower. There's a lot of blocks you can pull out, like foot washing and baptism, water baptism is necessary for salvation and, and whatever, whatever. Like, you have to believe in predestination or free will or you have to believe in a young earth older. Like, right? You can pull all those blocks out. Are those important things to the faith? Yeah. But if you pull them out, will your salvation be lost? No. So what are all the blocks you can pull out till you get to those final blocks that no matter what block you pull out, the whole tower flock crumbles. And so what John is saying is that most basic Jenga block tower, there are certain things you have to believe in. And the false teachers don't embrace those core blocks. If their towers fall over on the table, they're not a believer. If your tower's standing, It may be really weird looking, but it's standing because it has the core blocks. Then that's salvation. And so what John is writing, the second purpose, is that there are certain things you have to believe in or you're false. And you should not have fellowship with these kind of people. You can still have them in your life. You are to love them like Christ loved them. You are to bring them into the body of Christ, but not true fellowship of accepting what they believe and having mutual fellowship with them. And so John, this is a secondary purpose. But it's important to understand that his first and primary primary purpose is not refuting all those bad-thinking people out there. His first and primary purpose is to encourage and assure the believers of their salvation then it's to refute them. Sometimes I feel like the church feels like its primary purpose is to condemn and judge everybody, make sure the world knows that they're bad and wrong. And we're so busy pointing and judging and being mad at them and like, 
that we have forgotten to disciple and encourage and assure our own people. And the next thing we know, we turn our back back to our own people and they have slowly faded into the world around us. And we wonder why our congregation has gotten so small. And I don't mean that's true of every church. But we wonder. Yes, I'm in. My personality, my personality defaults towards doctrine. But as I've gotten older, I've realized but first and foremost, community and, and fellowship and, and being connected and one with each other has to be a priority. Because if we don't emphasize that, it doesn't matter how much you beat the truth if there's no fellowship, right? When Jesus, we only have one recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible, and it's John chapter 17. He didn't say, I pray that the world will believe what they're supposed to believe and that they'll be judging them. Now, is that in the Bible? Heck yeah. But what he prayed is, I pray that they will be one with each other and one with us, like we the Trinity are one with each other. So this is the purpose of John. 